And we are looking at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, and we're going to read down to verse 11 this morning. Romans 8, verses 5 through 11. If you were here with us two Sundays ago, you'll remember that we entered in on this 8th chapter of Romans. And I noted that this is really oftentimes held to be the greatest of the chapters in the greatest book in the Bible. It's sometimes shorthanded the great eight. Um, And because Romans 8 is so full, even though it can be divided into three very clean sections, we are going to slow down just a little bit as we make our way through Romans chapter 8. We looked together at those first four verses, and we're picking up this morning at verse 5 and looking down to verse 11. Well, now the Apostle Paul, having um, moved into a section of this letter in which he is focusing on how the Holy Spirit is the agent of God's sanctifying work in his people, and that he is the only one who is enabling his people to live lives um, as those who have been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, those who are no longer slaves of sin, but who have been raised to newness of life and have become slaves of God, The Apostle Paul now says, For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there is a well-known account. Martin Lloyd-Jones has often used it in his expositions of this section of scripture and other books that he has written on the Holy Spirit, but it is an account that is recorded in the memoirs of William Wilberforce, the great late 19th and early 20th century uh, British parliamentarian who you know was instrumental in bringing about the abolition of chattel slavery in the UK right around 1807. Uh, Wilberforce, you may know, was a congregant in uh, the church pastored by the renowned minister John Newton, who himself had been a slave trader and had been radically converted. And Newton, I know this is like six degrees of connection, Newton was good friends with another minister named Richard Cecil. And Wilberforce loved to visit the church that Cecil preached in because he believed that no one preached with such clarity, simplicity, and evangelical power as Richard Cecil. 
Well, Wilberforce also had a burden for the many parliamentarians and politicians that he served with in the UK, and one of those was his good friend William Pitt the Younger, who was at the time the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. And Wilberforce would often talk about the ministry of Richard Cecil to uh, William Pitt, and he would recurrently invite him to come and hear him preach. And Pitt would recurrently reject the invitations to come and hear William Pitt preach because he was himself a nominal Anglican and thought that he was religiously fine. But finally, on one occasion, Richard Cecil decided, I'm going to go, and he said, look, I'll go hear this individual with you, and so they made their way to church. And as they sat there, Wilberforce recounts that he was listening to this magnificent gospel exposition and he was thinking the whole time, I can't wait to, to hear what my friend William Pitt the Younger is thinking. And so no sooner was the service over that William Wilberforce turned to William Pitt and he said, what did you think? And Pitt said, I haven't a clue one thing that that man just said. And that is a striking illustration of what the Apostle Paul is trying to highlight in this passage. There are two people and only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who live according to the flesh, who cannot understand the things of the, the Spirit of God and cannot do what is pleasing to God. And there are those who are in the Spirit, who have been renewed in their minds, who love the Lord, who know the peace of God, and who long to do what is pleasing in his sight. Now, the Apostle Paul is introducing this in connection with what he has said in those first four verses. Remember, we saw that great declaration at the beginning of Chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're justified, if you are savingly united to Jesus, the condemnation of the law has been re removed. There is no prospect of judgment. All of your sins have been forgiven. And the apostle in no uncertain terms says there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ, but then he gives a description of what those individuals look like. Notice he says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. And then notice verse 4, he says that in, in us, the righteous requirement of the Lord may be fulfilled, and notice this, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now the Apostle is going to take that last statement. And in verses 5 through 11, he's going to unpack that. Those who walk not according to the flesh, but those who walk in accord with the Spirit. I want us to consider just three very basic things this morning. I want us to consider the two contrasting spiritual conditions, that of the flesh and the Spirit. Then I want us to consider the two contrasting spiritual marks, that is, those marks of the flesh and the marks of the spirit. And then I want us to consider two contrasting spiritual problems. One is death and one is life. Very, very simple. I want us to consider the two contrasting conditions, the two contrasting marks, and the two contrasting outcomes. Well, notice what the apostle does there in verse 5. He connects this with what he's just said. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, as I have already noted, there are only two kinds of people in the world. 
You could remove every cultural distinction. You could remove every socioeconomic distinction. You can remove every ethnic distinction. You can remove any distinction, anything by which anyone distinguishes them from other people, languages, cultures, education, socioeconomic status. You can remove all of that. And the Apostle Paul is telling us there are two and only two kinds of people in this world. There are those that set their minds on the flesh and the things of the flesh, and there are those in the spirit who set their minds on the things of the spirit. Now, it would help us to consider, first of all, that the apostle has told us throughout this letter that by nature, we all are dead in sins and trespasses. We are all under the wrath of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. That God has condemned Jew and Gentile under the same condemnation of the law. That he has flattened the playing field. That there are no distinctions by nature. That everyone is unrighteous and everyone is under the wrath of God and the curse of God by nature. Um, Now, that's important. Because the apostle is now making a distinction that comes on the heels of the solution to that problem. Um, Back in chapter 3, he has explained that God has provided a righteousness apart from the law that is imputed, that is received by faith in Christ. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. And then in chapters 6 and following, he's talked about the renewal, that those who have been justified receive by union with Christ. We've died with him. We've been raised with him. We've been set free from the dominion of sin. We've been made slaves to God. And all of those things are undergirding the distinction that Paul is making here. Now, one of the things that you may have done, and one of the things that I have oftentimes done, is is misread what Paul is saying in these opening verses of Romans 8. It's very easy when we hear things like, those who are in the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, to reduce that down to things like sexual sin. Many people want to reduce that down because we know the scripture speaks about things like sexual sin as being the deeds of the flesh. But when the Apostle Paul outlines the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, it is much more than just sexual sin. It is all of the dominating and prevailing sins of the mind, the mouth, the heart, the life, the body, the actions. Listen to this. Eric Alexander puts it this way. The flesh is primarily a life lived apart from the grace and redeeming power of God in Christ. The flesh is primarily a life lived apart from the grace and redeeming power of God in Christ. Alexander says the flesh is the description of everything we are apart from God's saving grace. It is the unredeemed and unregenerate humanity. And everything I am apart from God's grace in Christ is what the flesh of the sinful nature is referring to by the Holy Spirit. Now that's saying that all men are either entirely in the flesh or they are entirely living their lives in the spirit. Paul is not teaching perfectionism. We're going to come back to that. He's saying there are two spiritual conditions in which all men find themselves. If you are not regenerate, if you've never been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, then Paul's already told us that you are still in Adam 
You are still in your sins. You are still under the dominion of the law. And you are, therefore, in the flesh. You can see how all those things are connected. In Adam, in your sins, under the condemnation of the law, under the dominion of the law, and that is now shorthanded in the flesh. But if you have been justified by Christ, and if you have been raised up by him and set free from the dominion of sin and the condemning power of the law, then you are now in the spirit. Now here's what's really interesting. The Apostle Paul, for the first time in this letter in chapter 8, introduces the Holy Spirit to us and the the person and the work of the Spirit and the important role that he plays in the life of the believer, but he has done so almost seamlessly without drawing any sort of attention to the transition. It's really remarkable. The Apostle has just moved seamlessly into the, to tell us, essentially, if you are united to Jesus, then you live life in the Spirit. Now, if the flesh is life lived apart from the grace and power of God, then we have to understand that the Spirit is lived in light of the regenerating grace and the sanctifying power of God because of our union with Christ. It's very interesting if you looked at all the different names that the Spirit receives here. Notice back at the end of verse 4, he is simply called the Spirit. Notice in verse 5, again, those who live according to the Spirit. Notice the end of verse 5, those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There, very simply, he is called the Spirit. And there again in verse 6, set the mind... On the spirit is life and peace. But then notice what the apostle does in verse 9, the second part of that. He says, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Here, the apostle is explaining to us who the Holy Spirit is. He is is not some impersonal force. He is not an it. By the way, we care about pronouns in the Christian church. It's very important that we understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is the spirit of God. He is part of the Godhead. He is one of the members of the Godhead. He is equal to God in every way that makes God God, just as the Father and the Son are God. He is the blessed third person of the Godhead. But then notice what the Apostle Paul does. There is a redemptive historical movement in the titles by which the Spirit is denominated. Notice he goes from the Spirit to the Spirit of God. Now notice the end of verse 9. He says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And then notice what he does in verse 10. He says, but if Christ is in you. Now, he is not saying that the Holy Spirit is Christ. What he's saying is that there is such there is such an, a union in the Godhead of all three members of the Godhead that the Holy Spirit, while he is a unique member of the Godhead, because he infinitely indwells the eternal Father and Son, he can be denominated the Spirit of Christ. And then notice what the Apostle finally does in verse 11. He gives him one last title. Notice this. He says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He's essentially saying he's the Spirit of the Father. 
Now that's important because what Paul is saying is the life lived in the Spirit is the life lived in union with the triune God by the agency of the Holy Spirit. If Christ has done everything to redeem us, the Spirit is the one who indwells us, who has united us to all the members of the Godhead, And that union, and listen very carefully, that union is not something that can ever be broken. Let me put it this way. You today, wherever you are in your spiritual condition, are either united to Adam and in the flesh, or you're united to Christ and you are united to the Holy Spirit and to each member of the Godhead by him. And he indwells you. And that union can never be dissolved. Now, I understand every time we give in to fleshly sins, which we all do far too often, we wonder, am I really in the Holy Spirit or has the Holy Spirit departed from me? You'll remember in the Old Testament, David had those wrestlings in that great prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 when he says to God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, there is a very real sense where we can grieve and the Spirit. And every time we purposefully and volitionally sin against the Lord, we grieve and we quench the Spirit. But what Paul's saying is that if you are brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, if you've been raised up spiritually, if Christ has redeemed you, if you're united to Jesus, then the totality of your life, at your best moments and at your worst moments, are in light of your union with the Holy Spirit and the union that you have with the Father and the Son through him. So that Paul, and by the way, it's very interesting, I need to note this morning, in the totality of Romans chapter 8, he never gives us one imperative. He never says once, you know, here's what you need to do. You need to pray that you'll be able to live life in the Spirit. He never says, you need to stop doing this, and if you do, then you'll have the Holy Spirit and you'll live life in the Spirit. He never says that. In fact, he makes very clear, indicative statements about what God has done in raising up and setting apart his people by the Holy Spirit. Now, John Calvin, when he is reflecting on what Paul's doing, he's saying Paul is essentially teeing this up for believers to understand this. Listen to this. Calvin says that that Paul is contrasting the flesh and the spirit, life in the flesh, life in the spirit, in order to confirm to believers that the grace of Christ only belongs to those who have been regenerated by the spirit and who strive after purity. So the grace of Christ only belongs to those who have been born by the spirit of God and and who are now striving to live lives that are pleasing to God. But, Calvin says, Paul is also introducing these two things, life in the flesh and life in the spirit, lest believers, faithful believers, being being conscious of our many infirmities should despair. Because, he says, we know that in and of ourselves there is no good thing. That's what Paul said back in chapter 7. I know that in my flesh... Nothing good dwells. And so Paul's saying when we see those imperfections, when we see our failures, we wouldn't sink under the weight of them because if we have been regenerated by the Spirit, then then we are enabled to live life in the Spirit. 
We have been empowered to do that. I had someone say to me this week in a conversation about overcoming sin, and this individual said to me, so, so often Christians say, I just I want to be victorious. And he said, you already are victorious because Christ has conquered. We already are victorious because we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. This is vital to get. Paul's not holding something out there for believers saying, if, if you strive enough for moral purity, one day you'll attain life in the Spirit. He's saying this is true for everyone, everyone who has been redeemed by Christ, everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Jesus himself reduces this down in John chapter 3, in that great chapter about regeneration, about the new birth, in his dealings with Nicodemus, and Jesus says to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You see, Paul is essentially unpacking for us what Jesus says there. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's which, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And so Paul is saying, there are these two spheres of existence for all mankind. Now, as he begins to flesh out these two contrasting spiritual conditions, Paul now gives us two contrasting spiritual marks. Now, those marks are the marks of the flesh and the marks of the spirit. How do I know? Remember, you, you may have forgotten this, but, but I, said at the very, um, I said at the very beginning of our consideration of, of Romans 8 that this is a chapter that Paul is writing in order to give believers a grounding of the assurance they ought to have. This is a chapter about assurance. Remember, it starts with those words, there is now no condemnation, and it ends with that concept, there is no separation. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Those are the bookends. And in between, Paul's essentially now saying right here, he's essentially saying, how can I know whether I'm in the flesh or in the spirit? And he gives us several distinguishing marks. Now, I want us to consider here three marks of being in the flesh. The first, and this is a bit synthetic, but I think it works. The first is that they are totally depraved. Notice what he says there in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So, so he is not saying... Paul is not, listen very carefully, Paul is not talking about believers who have set their minds on sinful things. He's talking about unbelievers who only and always think about the world and fleshly things and that that dominates their life. This is very important that you get this because many believers have been troubled when they read a verse like this and they think, well, every time I've gotten sinfully angry, I was in the flesh, I must be in the flesh and not in the spirit. Every time I lusted, I'm in the flesh, I must not be in the spirit. You see, and then you can get in the quandary of having no assurance of salvation if you're a true believer because you've misunderstood what Paul's saying. Paul is saying the distinguishing mark of those in the flesh is that they are totally, every faculty, every part of them is depraved and, and all they do is set their minds on the things of the flesh. If you ask them, what is your highest goal in life? They'll say, my career, my children's education, my bank account, my experiences, my travel, whatever. 
And they will not mention the things of Christ. And they will not mention the things of the Spirit of God because all they can do is think about the things of the flesh and the things of this life. Now, um, John Murray put it this way, to have the things of the flesh as the absorbing objects of thought, interest, affection, and purpose is to set your minds on the things of the flesh. It is, it is the characteristic of the whole of you for the whole of your life. Now, here's the really sad thing, and I've got to say this this morning. Those that are in the flesh don't realize that that's the dominating and prevailing thing of their life because they don't have spiritual eyes to see that. It's a really sobering thing. Those that set their minds on the things of the flesh do so willfully and oftentimes because it's pervasive unconsciously. Now, the apostle tells us a second mark to total depravity is total hostility. Notice that in verse 7 he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That means any thoughts of God as he reveals himself in his word, any realization of who God is in so much as were his image bearers living in his world with the general revelation of him everywhere, it, 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 it stirs up in the mind and the heart and the life of those in the flesh hatred for God and his ways. Now you have to listen carefully. There are many people in the flesh, who say, I love God, but what they love is a God of their own making, not the God who reveals himself in Scripture. The apostle says that the marks of the flesh are total depravity and total hostility, living in the state of enmity to God, having our minds repulsed by the things of God. Um, And that in itself, stirring up further hostility. And then third... It is a state marked by total spiritual inability. Notice this. Notice verse 8. And if I could, if you have any issue with anything I've said, I would send you home to read this verse over and over and over until it just sinks in. Notice this. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He doesn't say will not. It's true that they will not. Uh, He doesn't say, could if they tried hard enough. He says they are not able to. Those who are in the flesh are unable to please God. So you see, from total depravity to total hostility to total inability, life in the flesh is marked out by life alienated and separated from God, life living for myself in all that I do. Now let me say this before we move on. That can be lived out in very dignified ways on the horizontal plane. So if, if, if you hear this and you think, you know, the sexually immoral, ex- explicitly sexually immoral people of the world are the drug addicts or the extortioners, then you're missing the point of what Paul's saying. You can look very dignified and be in the flesh. You can be very disciplined with your work. You can be disciplined with your schooling. You can be disciplined with your bank account and be totally in the flesh. You can you cannot act out what's inside to the degree that you otherwise would, and yet it's all acting within. And so you can see, Paul is saying, these marks are a life lived exclusively for me in the many ways that that happens. Now, by way of contrast, 
What are the marks of the Spirit? This is so beautiful. Paul says here, being in the Spirit is characterized by three things. Number one, it is characterized by spiritual mindedness. Notice the end of verse five. Those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. It has been asked, and this is sort of out of John Owen's book on spiritual mindedness, what do you think about when you're not thinking about something? What do you tend to think about when you're not purposefully trying to think about things? Paul says that the person, the man or woman who lives life in the spirit, sets his or her mind on the things of the spirit. Now, that is not a sort of mystical, um, okay, I'm setting my mind on the spirit. It's not what so many in the Pentecostal world do. The things of the spirit that Paul has to deal with here are the things of Christ. They're the things revealed in God's word. They're the things that God has said in his word are pleasing to him. So those who are in the spirit love to meditate on the things that the spirit has revealed in the word of God. Um, the apostle Paul says it in a different way in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says um, that the spiritual person compares spiritual things with spiritual. They set their minds on all that God has revealed in their word. They are going back to it constantly. They want to meditate on who God is. They want to meditate on his works. They want to meditate on what he's done in Christ. They want to meditate on his commands. They want to meditate on his promises. Their life is a life in which they desire to do that. Now, let me say this this morning. I said those things about the marks of the flesh. Paul doesn't say, if you're doing this perfectly every second of every moment of every day of your life, you're in the spirit. He's saying it is characteristic of those who have been regenerated to set their minds on the things of the spirit. I would say this morning when, when those who are in the spirit don't set their minds on the things of the spirit, but on the things of the flesh, they're grieved over that. They hate that. They're grieved that they would, they would, um, if I can put it this way, they're grieved and I'm grieved when I disappoint my Lord, when I displease God. They're, they're grieved when they, they feel like they haven't used their faculties to his glory. They're grieved when they recognize that they haven't, they haven't been in his word as they ought to. Um, I'll say this this morning. Believers, true believers who are in the spirit are grieved when they busy themselves so much that they feel like they don't have time to meditate on the things of the Spirit in the Word. But here Paul says those in the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Uh, the triune God is the absorbing object, Murray says, of their thoughts, interests, affections, and purposes. They are desiring to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Number two, the second mark, is that they are a people who live a reconciled life to God. Now, if, if the mark of the, the one in the flesh was hostility in the mind to God, the mark of those who are in Christ and in the spirit is that they are at peace with God in their minds, in their hearts. They've received the reconciliation. Notice what the apostle says at the end of verse six, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life 
and peace. When they think about the triune God, they're not, they're not arousing hostility in their minds and hearts. They are grateful for who he is. They want to know more of him. They're grateful that he's redeemed them. They're grateful for the sacrifice of Christ. They're grateful for everything God reveals in his word and how he has accepted them as righteous in Christ. And then there's a third. A third mark of those in the spirit is that they have a renewed will. They have a renewed mind. They have a reconciled life. They have a renewed will. Notice what the apostle says in verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And so what Paul's saying is the contrast is um, if, if those in the flesh cannot do anything to please God and are uninterested in doing anything that's pleasing to God, the contrast is those in the spirit are desirous of using their time and their energy, their money, their affections, their desires, their wills, everything God has given them, everything they are, they are desirous that that would be used for him, that they would run the course of his commandments, that they would do those things that are pleasing to him. That is the controlling, that is a controlling factor in their life. Now, Paul has, Paul has set out these two conditions, and he has set out these contrasting marks a bit. What distinguishes these two groups in those marks and in those conditions? And that is that true believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. True believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. What produces these different marks? The single determinative factor of what produces these marks in the lives of an individual is the Holy Spirit indwelling that man or woman or that boy or girl. Now, this is a marvelous thought. The apostle doesn't really unpack it here. He does it elsewhere. But he's essentially saying to believers that you are the temple of God. You are the place of God's dwelling. You are the people that God has chosen to inhabit. What a marvelous thought. By the way, if you heard nothing else I said this morning, hear this. There is no greater thought than than to think that the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable triune God would decide to take up his residence in sinners like us. By the thought that, that I, who had just been redeemed out of such wickedness and darkness and depravity, and that's true for everyone who's redeemed out of such depravity, that, that the triune God would, would decide that he would come and take up his home in my sinful body and soul. That's amazing. We who are just dust and ashes, we were made from the dust, we returned to the dust, and the infinite God says, of all the places, I am going to dwell. I am going to dwell in my blood-bought people. I am going to dwell in those for whom Christ died. I am going to dwell in those that I have united to Christ, that I have raised up, that I have set free from sin. I am going, and notice this, Paul says in verse 9, You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, 
anybody doesn't have him, he doesn't belong to him, but then notice what he says in verse 10, because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, Christ dwells in you. Christ dwells in you. Now, why is it so astonishing and so important that we get this? It is both astonishing and important because it is the key for us to living life in the Spirit. If I am ever going to faithfully live life in the Spirit, then I've got to remember that the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, has taken up his residence in me. And that means every time I'm tempted to go into fleshly sin, every time I want to go into that fleshly sin, and yet I'm not in the flesh, I'm in the spirit, I should remember that I am, and this is a a unique way of saying it, and I need to be careful, but it's true in a sense, I am essentially bringing the Lord Jesus into my sin and depravity. Now, that is an analogous way of speaking about this. My dad said to me when I was young, Nick, if if an individual is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, that also means that everywhere he or she goes, he or she is bringing Christ with them. Now that that would getting that as a reality should radically change our lives. I mean, I'll be transparent this morning. There are many times I feel very convicted about the way I've spoken about someone. Maybe even in very couched terms. Very couched criticisms that I shouldn't be making. And forgetting, if this is a believer in Christ that I'm speaking about, that this individual was purchased by the same Christ as me. That this man or woman is indwelt by the same spirit as me. And the same Lord Jesus lives in that person as lives in me. And I ought to be treating them as Christ would want me to treat them and as Christ would treat them. It also means that when I look out at other believers and see imperfections as other believers see in me, that I should never, ever despair of the sanctifying grace of the Lord Jesus because if Christ is in them, then he will not leave them to themselves. If Christ is in you, he will not leave you to yourself. If the Spirit of God indwells you, he will prick your conscience when you want to go to those fleshly deeds, when you want to go back to the old man. He will leave you feeling unsettled. He will send convicting grace into your heart, and he will urge you while he is interceding for you. Paul will say that at the end of the spirit groans with intercedings that cannot be uttered. He will urge you on in the Christian life and and keep you close to Christ. And this is beautiful. And you'll see at the end of this chapter that the purpose of God in predestinating, electing, calling, justifying, and glorifying his people is that they may be conformed to the image of his son. Why is it so important that you know that the Lord Jesus indwells you if you're a true believer? It's because God is interested in making you like him. There are many voices who will talk to you about Christian living and piety, the Christian life, holiness, and they will never tell you that the true essence of holiness is being conformed to the image of Jesus. If someone says to you, what does it mean? What does it look like 
to live life in the spirit. It looks like bearing the fruit that the Lord Jesus exhibited in his own life. Before he went to the cross in the upper room, he said to his disciples, he said, abide in my love. He said, my joy I give you. He said, my peace I give you. It's the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And life in the spirit is a life of the Lord Jesus indwelling his people and conforming them to his own image. Isn't that marvelous? Um, I may have told you this story, but um, sometime, I believe two years ago, one of my sons got a thousand-word jigsaw puzzle. Never a good idea. I learned that very quick. If you're jigsaw people, I'm sorry. It was a big mistake. But we got to the end of it, and one piece was missing. And this... One of my three sons had a meltdown over it. The one piece, it's ruined, it's not done. We ultimately found the piece, but I said, buddy, look, this this has come this far. Look, you can see what the picture is. And, and, And yet that's so much a picture of the Christian life. We fixate on the pieces that are missing. We, we fixate on what yet hasn't been fully sanctified. And we miss what has been done by the Spirit of God in us. Paul's trying to encourage you to press on, to live life in the Spirit, to let the Lord finish that picture in you, to pursue that, to, to, to form the picture of the Lord Jesus and his character in you. Now, let me say this very quickly. There are two outcomes that Paul sets out here. He's given us two conditions, two marks, now two outcomes. Very quickly and very simply, he tells us that those two outcomes are death and they are life. If you live your life in the flesh, you will die. And Paul there means eternal death. He's talking about eternal punishment. But if you live your life in the spirit, you will live. Now again, Paul hasn't called you to do a single thing. There's not one command in this chapter. But what we ought to do when we hear these things is we ought to, we ought to take an inventory of our life we ought to ask ourselves the question, does the Holy Spirit dwell in me? What are the things I tend to think about? What do I think about when I'm not thinking about anything? Do I purposefully long to think more about the things of God in the Word? Do I, do I long to have my will renewed more so that I do those things that are pleasing to Him? Am I desirous of knowing more of the peace that He has already produced by reconciling us through the body of Christ on the cross? Am I longing for these things to to shape me and form me? And if you can honestly say yes, that means you're in the Spirit, and that means you're called to walk in the Spirit, and that means that you will ultimately have that outcome of eternal life in the Spirit because of the Spirit's work in you, because of what Christ has done. But if you take an inventory of your life, and you cannot honestly say that, and you recognize that you are enslaved to the flesh, to sin, to the condemning power of the law, then the the triune God would call you this morning to come to the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance. And as you come to him, and you really and truly trust him, you will realize that the Spirit has done something in you and has brought you out of the flesh and into the realm of the Spirit for the rest of your life. Listen, this is marvelous. Once God has done that, there's no undoing what God has done. There is only us pressing on in it. And so I'd ask you this morning as you consider these things, what spiritual condition 
are you in? What are the marks to determine that spiritual condition? And are you cognizant of the ultimate outcome of these two conditions? I hope that no matter where you are this morning, you will look in faith to the Lord Jesus, that you will cry out to the triune God to give you the Holy Spirit to come and indwell you and to cause Christ to be formed in you and to enable you to live your life the rest of your days in the Spirit. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that you have revealed these things to us. We thank you that you have brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life, that you have transferred us from the state of the flesh to the state of the the spirit, that you have made us a people who now live in the spirit. Our God, would you make us a people who are cognizant of what this means for us, that the Holy Spirit would control our minds and our wills, our affections, our words, and our actions. Our God, we pray that we would know the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. And if there are any here this morning who are still in the flesh, we pray, our God, that you would bring them from that spiritual death to spiritual life and that they would know what it is to live their lives in the spirit of Christ. We do pray these things in Jesus' name.